Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Dig Deep. I missed seeing you all last week, but I hope you had a wonderful spring break and an amazing Easter. Uh, Our Easter services here at Grace were truly amazing, I thought, and the best part was seeing over 40 people get baptized this weekend. Wasn't that incredible? And what's cool is that we have some people that are really close to our community right here at Dig Deep who got baptized. So Megan's grandson, Caleb, was baptized. Chelsea's husband, Ricky, was baptized. Liz, in our group, got baptized. Anybody else have a loved one get baptized this weekend that I don't know about? Isn't that amazing? So I just don't know if there is a better way to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus than by celebrating new life in people that we love through baptism. It was just an incredible, incredible weekend. Okay, so it's been two weeks since we've been together, so we're just going to do a quick recap of where we are in Joseph's story. We are finally at the point now where it has been over 20 years, but Joseph's brothers re-entered the story in chapters 42 and 43. So just as a reminder of what you were reading in your homework, Joseph has spent the last seven years working as Pharaoh's right-hand man, collecting grain throughout all of Egypt, storing it up for the seven years of famine. And then the famine begins to spread, and it spreads all the way to the land of Canaan, which is where Jacob and Joseph's other 11 brothers still live. And so they start running out of food, and Jacob tells his sons, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And so they go to Egypt... Ten of the brothers, they leave Benjamin at home, and they show up in front of Joseph because he is the guy that you see if you need to buy grain from Egypt. And as you studied in your homework, Joseph proceeds to test his brothers in a variety of different ways. He starts by asking them questions that he already knows the answer to. He puts their money back in their sacks, seemingly testing their honesty. He tests their relationships with each other, with their father, with Benjamin, with Simeon. He puts them in these situations where they need to make difficult decisions based on their relationships. And the whole time, he keeps his identity concealed from them. And he seems to be watching to find out if they've changed at all. And he puts them through these tests, test after test test in chapters 42 and 43. And he's going to continue to test them in chapter 44, which we're going to read this coming week. But in all of his dealings with his brothers, even though his methods seem a little strange to me, they seem sort of deceptive and manipulative, it's clear that Joseph's motives are ultimately good He does not appear to be testing them just as a way of punishing them or putting them through some horrible experience. His end game is blessing them. It's providing for their needs. It's feeding them food and ultimately restoring the relationships. So we see this in the way that he moves toward his brothers in the second half of chapter 43. His brothers are in Egypt for the second time. They've come back to buy more grain. They've brought double the silver to make up for what was found in their sacks that they don't know how it got there. It was a mystery. And then they bring a bunch of gifts to Canaan to present, hoping that they won't be punished by Joseph. Again, not knowing that he is their brother. So they go, they are terrified, and Joseph's steward says to them in Genesis 43, verse 23, it's all right, he said, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, 
And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. In verse 29, as he looked about and saw his brother, Benjamin, remember Benjamin is his one brother who's from the same mom, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. This is the first step in the restoration of Joseph's Joseph's relationship with his brothers. But as we're going to see this week, he's not done testing them and he's not ready to reveal his identity to them just yet. And we're going to talk more about the restoration of these relationships over the next two weeks when Joseph is finally faced with the decision, am I going to forgive my brothers or not? But today, I want us to focus on a critical event in the story that we find in chapter 43, verse 26, when we read, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. This is the first time in over 20 years that all 12 of these brothers are in the same room, and his 11 brothers bow down on the ground to him. Joseph's dreams that he had when he was 17 years old just came true. They were just fulfilled. So I just want us to go back for just a minute to Genesis 37, where we started this journey with Joseph, and read his dreams again as he tells them to his brothers. In Genesis 37, starting in verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood up while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And now here we are in chapter 43, over 20 years later, and this prophetic dream, these dreams given to him by God are finally becoming a reality. After all these years, all that time in the pit, all the betrayal, slavery, wrongful imprisonment, he's now standing in a room and all of his 11 brothers are bowing down on the ground before him. And here's what's so striking to me about this moment. The actual fulfillment of Joseph's dreams looks so different from how it looked in the distance when he first saw it. I don't know whether you've ever had a prophetic dream about the future, but maybe you've sensed that God put gifts inside of you that he wants to put to use, or he's placed a deep desire in your heart for something that you sense is from him. It lines up with his word, his truth, and you feel him pulling you toward it. There's a dream that he's placed inside of you. And for Joseph, that dream was a supernatural prophetic 
dream, but it was also a set of gifts that backed up that dream that we've seen throughout this whole story, gifts of leadership, administration, wisdom, even being able to interpret other people's dreams. And so here's what you need to know today. The fulfillment of the dreams that God has put in your heart will probably look a lot messier than you'd imagined when he first placed them in there. This has been true of every dream I've ever seen come to fruition in my life, every God-given dream. My dream of marriage, when I met my husband, I dreamt of marrying him specifically, and I saw us riding off into the sunset, best friends forever, lovers, ready to take on the world. And after almost 14 years of marriage, I can tell you that it's a lot different than I imagined when I first dreamed about it. It's so much better, it's so much harder. Having kids is different. I always long to be a mom, and being a mom is quite possibly the best thing in my life, but it is definitely the hardest thing in my life. Stepping into ministry as a family was different. So much better, but so much harder. In every area of my life, every dream that I see God working out over time, it's both more difficult and more beautiful than I ever imagined when I was young. I can't help but think back to Jen's story that she shared with us two weeks ago about how God placed in her this deep desire, this dream to be a mom someday, but also this strong desire to be an older sister. She so desperately wanted a younger sibling, hopefully a sister, but it never occurred to her that her future children would be adopted and that her younger sister would be her oldest daughter's birth mom. I mean, what a different picture, but what a beautiful display of God bringing to fruition a dream that he placed in her heart. The fulfillment of the dreams that he's placed inside of you will be a lot messier, but I also believe more beautiful than you ever imagined when he first gave you the dream. I love the honest and raw detail that twice shows up in these two chapters. In chapter 42, verse 24, and 43, verse 30, Joseph has to quickly excuse himself, remove himself from the situation to go weep. I'm guessing when he had these dreams when he was 17 years old, he didn't picture that being part of it. We live in a culture that would love to believe that life is just one big highlight reel of all of our dreams coming true, everyone living his or her best life. And honestly, if you look at my Instagram account, you will see the highlight reel of my life. Those are the moments that I want to share with friends and family. They're moments worth celebrating, and I think that's a good thing. I generally don't post the pictures of the times that I've cried so hard I look like I've been punched in the face. I don't post selfies of me in the chair at my counselor's office with hashtag therapy for life. I just don't. You will not find pictures of me pulled over on the side of the road or up in the middle of the night crying out to God, why? Why like this? Why this way? Why is this happening? But those moments are there. Then they're there for all of us. The longer I live, the more I realize everyone is hurting. Everyone is hurting and pain is a part of all of our stories. And I love that the Bible is honest about that. I love that we get that raw honesty from Joseph's story in Genesis. Joseph's dream just became a reality. His brothers are bowing down on the ground before him, and he has to excuse himself to go weep in private. Because often, 
when the dreams that God put inside of us do become a reality, it's so much more beautiful, but more painful and sometimes more confusing than we ever would have imagined. So I don't know what kind of dream or gifts God has placed in your heart, a dream for your marriage to be restored to a place of health, a dream to be a mom someday, a dream for your career or for a ministry that God has placed inside you, you feel like it's burning inside you. Maybe it's for a broken relationship to be restored, to start a project, to go back to school, to take that risk that you know you need to take. Whatever dream he's stirring inside of you, I believe there's two really important lessons we need to learn from Joseph about the dreams that God has placed in our hearts. So here they are. I encourage you to write these down. The first challenge is this. Hand your dream back over to God. See, the danger of a dream is that it has the potential to distract you from the God who gave it to you in the first place. We live in a culture that blurs the lines between our dreams and our identity. We say things all the time like, live your dreams, follow your dreams, dream big, be you, do you. I saw the cover of a dream journal, and it said in ornate script, follow your dreams, they know the way. And I thought, no, they don't. That's terrible advice. The dream is the picture of the preferred future. It's not the roadmap how to get there, follow your dreams. They know the way. Come on. Sorry, that's for another time. If we are not careful, our dreams, even the dreams that God has given us, the desires that he has placed inside of us, the good things that he wants for us, they can become the most important things in our lives. They become our identity and then those dreams start to take over. They dictate our decisions, our relationships, and even our faith. Continually putting your dream back into the hands of the dream giver sets you free from being controlled by your dream. I cannot imagine the disappointment Joseph must have felt through his years of slavery, imprisonment, loneliness, homesickness, all the while thinking, this is nothing like I dreamed my life would look like. And that dream wasn't just something that Joseph wished for or something he made up. It was a God-given dream. And he's looking around thinking, this is not what I thought it would look like. But he didn't allow the memory of that dream to distract him from the God who gave him the dream in the first place. One of the places in the story that I think we see this most clearly is back in chapter 41, verse 16. You remember Peggy walked us through this moment where Joseph has been brought out of the pit and he's in front of Pharaoh and he's given the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he says, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And Peggy showed us how remarkable Joseph's humility is in that moment. And I agree. See, one of the spiritual gifts supernatural gifts that God gave Joseph was the ability to interpret dreams. And if I had been given that ability, I know for a fact that my identity would get all tangled up in that gifting. And so one of the ways that I think about this is I don't know what it's like to be a physician, to be a doctor, but I imagine that if I went to medical school and put all that time in and became a physician, the moment that I would wait for my whole life is the moment when I would be on an airplane and a lady's going into labor 
and somebody stands up and says, is there a doctor on the plane? It's like, that would be my focal point, which is probably bad. Maybe that's why I'm not supposed to be a doctor. For all of medical school, I'd be like, that is the moment. And that's the moment that you stand up and go, I'm a doctor. It's me. You know, and you run forward, and it's, it's this total fulfillment of like, this is who I am. I am the one for you. Joseph could have done that here. Do you see? He could have gotten so wrapped up in his gifts and his abilities and the things that God had given him that in that moment he's like, it's me, I'm the guy you're looking for, I can do it, I can interpret your dreams, and he doesn't. He says, I cannot do it, but God can do it. That is the testimony of a man who has not allowed his identity to get entangled with his dreams, his giftings, even supernatural dreams and gifts from God, prophecies about the future. He has kept a healthy relationship with his dreams. And I believe that's how Joseph's faith survived all those horrible years in the pit. Because when you focus on the dream giver, not just on the dream, you won't be as crushed when life doesn't look like you want it to, like you thought it would, like you thought God promised you it would. You can live life in the freedom of knowing that if it was from God, he will bring it to fruition. Hand your dream back over to God. Write it out. What's the dream? What's the thing that you feel him nudging you to do that gets you excited? What are the gifts that he's given you? Write them out and say, here they are, God. Take a step back from them. They're not mine. They're yours. I give them back to you. The second challenge is this. Win the day. Win the day. Mark Batterson, in his book, Chase the Lion, puts it this way. Games aren't won on game day. Games are won in the weight room, the film room, the locker room. You get into shape one workout at a time. You get out of debt one payment at a time. You get your graduate degree one class at a time. You get the music scholarship one rehearsal at a time. You get the job promotion one project at a time. You get the game ball one practice at a time. He goes on in that chapter to tell the story of Pablo Casals, who is considered by many to be the greatest cellist who has ever lived. He played for Queen Victoria when he was 22, and he played for President Kennedy when he was 86. Casal lived to the age of 96, and he was still, at 96, practicing cello for three hours a day. And when asked why, he said, I'm beginning to notice some improvement." Batterson says, we live in a culture that celebrates 15 minutes of fame, but God honors a lifetime of faithfulness. And this is what we see in Joseph's life, isn't it? His circumstances look nothing like he imagined, but every time we check in on him, he's being faithful. He worked hard. He's faithful to complete every assignment that was given to him. He held on to his integrity when it was difficult. He shows up day after day, ready to leverage his gifts for the benefit of others, he was obedient, even in the pit. And Batterson says, obedience earns compound interest. Over time, it's called faithfulness. You don't start over every day. You build on the day before. And he says, so win the day. Win the day. Win the practice. Win the class. Win the meeting. And I would add, win the laundry. Win the potty training for the love. Win the next day by going to bed on time. Win the morning by getting up when the alarm goes off. Win the day. Because I think for every one of us, 
There's a dream that God has placed in your heart, but he's giving you a practical step of obedience to take today that's in line with that dream. But sometimes we get so caught up in the big picture, in the long haul, that we lose sight of the little things, the little obedience steps that he is calling us to take toward that dream that he's placed in our life. What change do you need to make today to win the day? Because I believe we see Joseph doing this again and again. He hands his dream back to God, doesn't let it become his identity, but he shows up day after day and wins each day that's placed in front of him. And so throughout this story, we see that Joseph was faithful. Much more importantly, God was faithful, and Joseph's dream became a reality. And there's some tension to those two challenges. Hand your dream back over to God, but then also do what you can do in everyday obedience to win the day. And so as we close, it's important that you understand the dreams that God put inside of you aren't just for you. The dream that Joseph had at 17 drove his brothers crazy. They hated him for it. Just as a reminder of how much they hated him, in Genesis 37, verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. They hated him for his dream. Why? Because at face value, it looked like Joseph was the only one benefiting from this dream. Oh, everyone's bowing down to you. How nice for you, you jerk. Who do you think you are? I mean, if I was one of his brothers, that's how I would see this dream. But when it actually came to pass, the ones benefiting from the fulfillment of the dream were the brothers. Their bowing down was the act that allowed them to receive grain, to save the lives of their families. Joseph's dream was not just for him. In fact, it wasn't even primarily for him. It was for the saving of many lives, including the lives of his entire family. It wasn't about self-actualization or fulfillment. It was about what God was doing in the world bigger than Joseph. And I believe the same is true for us. The gifts and dreams and passions that God has given you are not just for you. They're not primarily for you even, I don't believe. They are for his glory and for the good of his people and his plan. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, where he's talking about how, as the body of Christ, we are all given gifts by the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for his or her own self-actualization. Now, someone said it, for the common good. That's right, Meg. The gifts that he's given you, the dream that he's given you, isn't primarily for you. It's for the common good. So I don't know if you're supposed to write that book or start that ministry or re-engage in your marriage in a new way or as a parent in a new way. I don't know what it is for you, what the dream is, the picture of the preferred future. But whatever it is, I don't believe it's just for you. I think it's for the common good and it's part of his larger plan. And so as we go into our group time, I want to challenge you to lean into that tension of these two things, of handing your dream back over to God, but then also choosing to win the day, to be obedient in the small things. And so three questions for you as you get ready to discuss together. One, what dream has God placed in your heart? 
Spend some time sharing these things. I think sometimes we don't share these with each other enough. What gifts, what dreams, what passions, what dream has God placed in your heart? And then what do you need to do to practically hand your dream back over to God? Maybe as a group you want to just take time writing down those dreams and then have a couple minutes to pray a prayer to God over those dreams, giving them back to him. What do you need to do to practically hand your dream back over to God? And then what do you need to do today to win the day? What is that practical step of obedience that God's calling you to take to win the day? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us a picture of the real, honest, raw state of Joseph's heart as he experiences the fulfillment of the dream that you gave him. Help that perspective to shape the way that we think about the gifts and dreams that you've placed in our hearts. And God, help us to, to dream big. This is a miracle, what you did in Joseph's life. And we know that you invite us to be a part of things like that. So help us to dream those big dreams, but to hand them back over to you and then show us the areas where we need to take a step of obedience so that we can win each day, so that we can take one step of obedience after another to build a lifetime of faithfulness. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.